0: It's March 2020 and today marks the beginning of the most disorientating and exhausting year of your pharmacy career. You're about to step into the intensive care unit for the first time during a global pandemic. Your mask and layers of protective clothing feel like an alien skin, depersonalising everyone around you.
1: I think the first time I just felt really panicky because there seemed to be so much to remember. I'd never had to wear any kind of PPE before. And there was a certain order that you had to put everything on. You were cleaning your hands in between times, making sure that it was all fitted properly. Um, And I just thought, how on earth am I going to do this every day, several times a day, and remember how to do it in the right order and not get it wrong? Um, But then when it was on, it just felt really hot, and like you were in a separate bubble away from, from everyone else. and. I just couldn't imagine how I was going to get the day job done whilst dressed up in all this stuff.
2: You know, there were lots of things that, that went through your mind. You know, was I putting on it correctly? Were there any gaps with my mask? Uh, you know, Were well, there a seal, a perfect seal formed? So, yeah, nothing really prepared us, you know, for the sort of challenges that we were facing. You know, wearing PPE and, and wearing eye protection and, and, and visors and, and, and having masks on and dressed in, in so much you know, protective layering, you know, it became very hot and, you know, inside. And, and breathing was, you know, initially a big problem because we were not used to breathing through masks, especially FP95 masks. And um, so that had its challenges and not being able to see people's faces. You know, so you couldn't recognise anybody.
0: That was Paresh, lead pharmacist for older people and stroke. And before him, Sarah, an education and training pharmacist. For both of them, working life changed overnight as they were urgently redeployed to ICU to help with the surge of COVID patients in their respective trusts. But even for those who had regular experience of ICU, it wasn't the place they were used to. With family visits confined to iPad screens, the intermittent click and rattle of ventilators and unrelenting beeping of monitors and machines were the only sounds to break the silence.
1: It was very different to the intensive care unit that I remembered because obviously everyone was now in PPE, they were overrun with patients, Um, but in a weird way, even though they were overrun with patients, it felt really empty because When I've worked on ITU in the past, I was used to seeing families there alongside the patients and obviously no visitors were allowed. So it just looked really bare and really frightening.
2: We had our names and our designations on, on stickers that we could write on our PPE and that would help identify who's who. But it was very strange being in an environment where you did not really know anybody. You know, there were so many different people working. It's not like working in your own ward. You were just a name and doing a role, a critical role um, that was benefiting your patients. So the the, the atmosphere was, you know, quite strange in the beginning.
0: Sarah and Paresh are two of a number of hospital pharmacists I've spoken to over the past month to try to understand the impact that working during the pandemic has had on pharmacists' mental health and wellbeing and what support has been available. I'm Julia Robinson, clinical and science editor here at the Pharmaceutical Journal. We've all been hugely shocked and saddened by the numbers of people who've lost their lives during the pandemic. But for those on the front line, it's not just the numbers that are hard to come to terms with. It's also the rate at which patients, both young and old, were dying just days after being admitted. And that this was happening every day for months on end. Most pharmacists would have never experienced a situation like that before in their working lives. And as a result, many felt utterly hopeless, as well as fearful that it could have been me. For Sarah, the Covid patient she remembers best is the one that most reminded her of her own family.
1: So he was quite a young man in his early 40s who'd been sedated and ventilated due to Covid. and on the other end of this computer screen, there was his wife and his children telling their daddy that they loved him and that they wanted him home. He couldn't speak to them. I hoped that he could hear them, but all, all I could hear was this family who should have been with their dad and their husband, and they weren't. And it just really brought it home. This disease can hit people really badly, even people who you don't expect to get seriously ill. It was a man in my 40s, and I just thought that could be my husband and my kids. And that was really hard.
0: For another pharmacist I spoke to, Hera, who, prior to the pandemic, worked between the cardiology and respiratory wards, the patient she remembers most vividly is a young mother, much like herself.
3: So right from the beginning, one patient I don't forget was a 29-year-old um, who'd just given birth to a baby girl. And so she was, you know, similar age to me uh, with no underlying sort of obvious comorbidities. And she had ended up on the intensive care unit um, after having contracting COVID. And unfortunately she didn't make it. And I think that really brings it home because um, how's that child going to be brought up?
0: For Paresh, his lasting memory of being redeployed to the ICU is the number of patients he saw who were from ethnic minorities. And this story has played out across the country. An analysis carried out by Public Health England showed that, after accounting for the effect of sex, age, deprivation and region, people of Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, other Asian, Caribbean and other black ethnicity had between a 10 and 50% higher risk of death compared with white British. And people of Bangladeshi ethnicity had around twice the risk of death from COVID compared with people of white British ethnicity.
2: And we were also seeing a lot of patients you know, from ethnic minorities you know, when it's starting to come out that you know, it was affecting ethnic minorities more so than other groups. And, um, and being of an ethnic minority myself and of a similar age to these patients, it was, you know, it was bringing the message quite you know, close to home that it could be me on that table um, you know, as, as a patient. Um, so yes, there were lots of things that were, you know, going on mentally.
0: The pandemic has affected every one of us differently and the impact it's had on our mental health has also varied. Some of us will have had to go into work while others have been able to stay at home. Some of us will have experienced the worst and lost loved ones, while others will have thankfully been untouched. Now in 2021, with our vaccine rollout in full swing, It's worth remembering that at the beginning of the first wave, we knew so little about COVID and how it was transmitted, and effective treatments and vaccines still seemed a very long way off. Many of those on the front line were living in constant fear that they were going to take the virus home to their loved ones, despite taking every possible precaution.
3: Certainly the first three months of the pandemic, I was not myself. I was going home, feeling like I'm taking something home. We were, you know, being very, very careful. I was changing properly, going home, having the showers, all the advice, and, you know, sort of keeping this. But I've got a little one, so I've got, uh, at the time, 18, 19-month-old, and it was just
1: very difficult to just be like, don't come near me. My children were quite worried because I was on ITU, which made me feel guilty. And at one point, one of my daughters wrote me a letter saying that she hoped I wouldn't die, and I just felt, It just felt like I was always doing the wrong thing. I should either be at work when I was at home or I should be at home when I was at work.
0: Guilt was a common theme throughout my conversations with these pharmacists. Feeling guilty because they thought they weren't doing a good enough job. Feeling guilty about not being there for their families while at work. And also feeling guilt about their use of PPE.
3: You felt like I'm privileged enough to wear a PPE. I need to make the most of it. Um, Every time I go into the, the hot zone, I need to really make it worth putting this PPE on um, because it was just such a finite resource at the beginning. Um, There was right at the beginning a bit of debate about whether the pharmacist should be going in or not.
1: I felt guilty that I might not be giving my patients the best service because I was new into ITU and having to ask a lot of questions. I felt guilty that I couldn't work more shifts but I couldn't because I had my children at home and my husband was trying to do a full-time job at home and homeschool three young children. Then I felt guilty that I wasn't at home full-time to help with the homeschooling and to stop my children panicking about me.
0: It would be incredible if all of this didn't have a powerful effect on your wellbeing. In fact, a survey by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and pharmacists' support late last year found that just over half of respondents said the pandemic had affected their mental health and wellbeing to some extent. But for some, the past year will have had a much longer lasting effect on their mental health, and they may require support for years to come.
4: I found myself not being able to be there for, for other people. Me, the other people in my team who come to me with problems and I just feel frustrated and, and a bit angry. Um, and so, I, I certainly felt like I I wasn't myself. Um, and actually, the people that sort of noticed and sort of started saying things were some of the nurses actually on critical care. They were saying, "Oh, you know, you've you've lost a bit of weight. Um, whenever I see you, you look tired. Are you okay?" And I was just like, oh, you know, we're all going through this. And I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't complain, you know, I hadn't been through everything that they had been.
0: That was a specialist critical care pharmacist who we'll call Jane. For Jane, the pandemic had a devastating effect on both her working and personal life, leading her to be diagnosed with severe anxiety, depression, and atypical anorexia nervosa. And Jane isn't alone. According to a survey of almost 1,200 frontline health and social care workers, including pharmacists, 60% experienced a mental health disorder during the first lockdown. 22% met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, while just under half had clinically significant anxiety and the same proportion had depression. For Jane, like for many of us, exercise was an effective escape during the pandemic, but with the ongoing pressures and strains of working in critical care, it became self-destructive.
4: Obviously, I was finding work difficult to manage. I was worrying that I sort of wasn't doing enough. And then I think I started to look to exercise outside of work as a way of finding that sense of achievement and trying to chase that and chase that. And then something that I previously enjoyed and used as my coping strategy became something destructive. And you know, some people turn to alcohol, some people turn to drugs. You know, I've not gone down any of those paths, but again, something that should be a pleasure and that we're privileged to be able to do, um, like yeah, exercise and that sort of thing, just became a bit of a destructive coping strategy.
0: Jane went to her GP who suggested antidepressants, which she took and found helpful, as well as a course of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, or CBT. However, the CBT wasn't the right option for her, and she eventually found the support she needed through a charity. She's now on the road to recovery.
4: I think I'm a lot more rational now in sort of terms of accepting what I have done at work and trying to get job satisfaction of being grateful for what I have done, um, and then yeah, to then be able to apply that to other areas like yeah, going back to the yeah, like social activities and, and exercise with a healthier mindset of I'm using this, you know, for enjoyment and for fun.
0: In Jane's case, it was the support of her critical care colleagues, as well as her partner, that prompted her to seek help. And the other pharmacists I spoke to also painted a picture of a close knit community within their hospitals that helped to buffer the psychological impact of working during a pandemic.
1: Yeah, I was I was surprised actually because people in my workplace were quite open about how they were feeling and I think that probably was because the organisation were making it so clear that they wanted to look after us all and that they wanted to make sure we all knew there were resources available to help. So I I did feel like it was okay to talk to people if I wasn't feeling great and explain why.
3: We actually interacted a lot more and I felt like the team spirit really come out um, during the year so I think... Between us, without sort of specific roles, we probably did, but it was also the first time I have seen a lot of tears in the department as well, Um, and sort of seen a lot of people I never imagined cry in the department because of um, just being totally overwhelmed by the situation.
0: Paresh's department was particularly proactive and set about putting measures in place to help people who were at risk of becoming overwhelmed.
2: So at the very onset, we knew that we had a group of pharmacists that were going to see a lot of very difficult, very challenging things and experience these type of challenging um, situations. And the mental health would be very critical.
0: Parash and his colleagues approached Nina Barnett, a consultant pharmacist in their trust, who had extensive experience in providing coaching, mentoring and education for healthcare professionals.
5: So the lead pharmacist for our ICU approached me after they had had a briefing at the very beginning of the pandemic which outlined as much as we knew of the severity of the situation and as you know yourself it was really very shocking to think about the mortality that was potentially ahead of us and that sadly we we have actually seen. So that conversation led us to think about how we were going to support a group of pharmacists who were being redeployed from other areas of pharmacy, so didn't necessarily have ICU expertise, had to learn not only about ICU, but also had to learn about COVID at a time where we knew very, very little. Nina's approach
0: was based on two types of wellbeing support, Schwartz Rounds and balance groups, both of which focus on thinking about the emotional impact of a case rather than just the clinical impact. Due to COVID restrictions, the groups were held virtually on a weekly
5: basis. We would start with a gentle introduction, which was very much just a check-in about how, how am I today? How are we all doing today? Just going around to see how we were, to get a baseline for each other really as to whether we were in a position to even have a conversation. And then what I would do is I would invite somebody in the group to share an experience they had over the last week. And I didn't, I wasn't prescriptive at all about what that experience might be. It's just something that happened that they might find helpful to share with colleagues who are in similar situations to them. And they would tell their story for three or five minutes.
0: Each of the attendees would have the opportunity to share their stories and let other people reflect on them.
5: The outcome of doing that was that the storyteller would then be reinforced by everyone in the room that their feelings were normal and that other people would have struggled. And that sometimes people who tell their stories might have had a different take on how to deal with it. So it would help them to think about how they might manage it in the future.
0: During wave one of the pandemic, Nina ran these sessions once, sometimes twice a week for nine weeks. Since then, the sessions have evolved as the needs of those attending have also changed.
5: So we're now looking more about people just talking about how their week's been and what's been on their mind individually as we go around, and other people just chipping in. And that's probably a testament to the fact that people are more comfortable with speaking now and more comfortable with sharing a story without needing the preamble, as well as the fact that the acute trauma, thank goodness, has lessened.
0: So what is out there for pharmacists who don't have contacts like Nina? For Jane, it was difficult to find the support she needed within the pharmacy team.
4: I have to say that when I needed space um, and I and I was struggling, I didn't feel that I could talk to anybody senior in pharmacy. I didn't feel like anybody really expressed that, um, particularly within like, more senior staff. I mean, you could talk about it with colleagues, but that was probably more on a friend level. Um, So I think pharmacy is offering things, but I do think that it's possibly at a bit of a sort of lip service level at at the moment, Um, and I think think it's going to take a culture shift for that to change.
0: And at the beginning of the pandemic, there was very little mental health support on offer at the national level for pharmacists. But at the end of 2020, NHS England and NHS Improvement announced that it was investing money to provide a package of mental health support for all healthcare staff. As part of this, pharmacists from all sectors will have access to 40 mental health hubs, as well as the NHS Practitioner Health Service, a free confidential counselling service previously just available to doctors and dentists. I spoke to Dane-Claire Gerarda, who has been Medical Director of NHS Practitioner Health for the past 15 years. She reminded me that although the focus recently has been on the mental health impact of the pandemic, things were not exactly rosy before.
6: We have to remember that the mental health of NHS staff right across the board wasn't good before the pandemic. We had very high levels of burnout, high levels of anxiety, depression, and proxy markers, such as early retirement uh, for doctors, presenteeism, i.e. turning up for work when you shouldn't be, but for others, absenteeism, very high rates of that. And there was calls from many organisations, including for pharmacists, about addressing the well-being needs of NHS staff.
0: Data from the Pharmaceutical Journal's 2019 Salary and Satisfaction Survey show that around 90% of pharmacists' respondents felt stressed before the pandemic. Of these, around a third were moderately stressed, 13% were very stressed, and 4% had to take time off work because of stress. And while this episode of the PJ Pod has focused predominantly on hospital pharmacists, it's important to mention that these issues aren't exclusive to that sector. When the same PJ survey was carried out in 2020, the results suggested that it was community pharmacists who felt the most stressed.
6: They tend to work in isolation. They, Because of the pandemic, they've had to limit the number of staff that they've had working with them, and yet they've been busier than ever. They have always struggled financially, and I'm sure that they're not going to come out of this you know, without And they'll be struggling coming out of this because of all the additional costs they've had. Plus, people forget them, uh, a bit like they forget GPs. So I think we need to be addressing the needs of pharmacists, community pharmacists, and we need to do it pretty urgently.
0: Looking to life post-pandemic, we need to consider how the mental health support that's become available over the past year can be made permanent for all pharmacists rather than just as a temporary reaction to a public health emergency.
5: I think we've really got an opportunity now to think about how we start to embed conversations about how we cope with seeing patients and situations as part of the thing that we used to just do for clinical review. So for example, we might have had a a meeting where we presented a case to each other about clinical challenges with a particular patient. How did we feel listening to a story about that patient? How do we feel when we see that type of patient? Do we ever get sort of what we think of as an exaggerated reaction to seeing a patient? Does it upset us in what might be an undue way? Why might that be? Does it remind us of something that's going on at home? And actually what help do we need to do to feel safe and secure and remain mentally well when those things happen?
0: These conversations could be transformational, but they have to be backed up with dedicated specialist support for those who are struggling with their mental health. We asked NHS England whether it will continue funding for the COVID mental health hubs beyond March 2022 when it's due to run out, but it didn't commit to that. Since 2019, the RPS has been campaigning for all pharmacists to have the same level of access to Dame Clare's service as doctors and dentists, but it's far from clear whether this is likely to happen on a permanent basis. The pandemic may have made it worse, but there was an existing wellbeing crisis among the pharmacy profession way before COVID-19. And we should all be fighting for support structures to continue after it becomes a distant memory. Dame Clare sums it up nicely.
6: We've got to really look after those that are, are, are on the edge and there will be some on the edge. And we have to identify them. We have to make sure they have easily accessible services and we have to put our metaphorical arms around them and ensure that we love them hold them, care for them.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode. If any of these discussions have resonated with you personally, support is available. Pharmacists, trainees and students now have access to direct psychological support via the charity Pharmacists Support and we provided links to other places you can go in the show notes. Thanks as always for listening. Here at the PJ, we really appreciate your support for our journalism. The best way to make sure you never miss an episode is to hit follow or subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. The PJ Pod is brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. This episode was produced by Jeff Marsh and presented by me, Julia Robinson, with support from Dawn Connolly and Nigel Prates. See you next month. Bye-bye.